1970, the Irish Women's Liberation Movement was launched by a small group of women journalists and political activists wanting to highlight the huge inequality that women faced in Ireland. They published a manifesto, Chains or Change. Nell McCafferty and Maureen Johnson delivered it to the Irish people on the Late Late Show on the 6th of March 1971. Joining me this evening to talk about this seminal moment in modern Irish history is Rosita Sweetman, a founding member of the Irish Women's Liberation Movement. She's also the author of the book Feminism Backwards, a memoir and a reappraisal of this time. Rosita, you are very welcome to the History Show. Thank you, Miles. Take us back, if you would, to the beginnings. How did the Irish Women's Liberation Movement get started and who was involved uh, at Ground Zero? Really, it was Maureen de Barca. And I was in a discussion with Maureen recently at Maynooth University. And Maureen casually said, oh, yeah, it was when I was in prison. And I was thinking, my God, would, would any political activist be in prison these days? But that was the 70s and it was an incredibly political time. And Maureen had been active against the war in Vietnam, the Dublin Housing Action Committee, civil rights. And she started thinking, I'm fighting for all these issues. Why am I not fighting for women? And very soon after she came out of prison, she was in the Workers' Party bookshop. She was running that in Gardner Street. And two feminists came from America and she was talking with them. And around the same time, Mary Marr, who was from Chicago, had been home and she brought back Betty Friedan's book. Books then were like the sacred text. Like there was no Amazon or book depository There wasn't any online to go and order a book. You had to be in New York and buy the book or be in America and buy the book. So the first meeting was with Margaret Guy, who was a wonderful woman who ran Guy's Restaurant, a lifelong activist, Mary Marr and Maureen de Burke. And they met in Bewley's and they decided, yes, it would be a really good idea to set up a women's movement in Ireland. There were two more meetings in people's houses, one in Mary Marr's house, one in Mary Kenny's house. And then Mrs Guy said, why don't you all come and I'll give you the upstairs room in Guy's, which was in Baggett Street, to meet. And it was brilliant because it was really convenient to everybody. It was really easy to get to. You could grab something to eat before going up. And that was when we started every Monday evening at Guy's. I was surprised actually at how short was the duration of the existence of the Irish Women's Liberation Movement. We'll we'll get on to that later. But how did you get the word out that this movement had begun? How did you actually get members, attract members to the organisation? Initially, it was word of mouth. A lot of us were in journalism but like I was just thinking back on that. We weren't really trying to get members at the beginning. We were a hothouse trying to educate ourselves. It was Mary Marr's idea to put Chains or Change together. And we launched that on the Late Late Show. And that was really when the word got out. 
that there was a women's movement in Ireland, that there were these issues that women were passionate about. And it was really after the late, late that things exploded and 900 women turned up at a meeting in the mansion house. To all our astonishment, like some of us thought we might be sitting there on our own for the evening. But after the late, late, the story just exploded around Ireland and women came from all over to that meeting. We'll come back to the uh, iconic, I suppose you could call it, late, late programme and the row that resulted during that and then from that. But just tell us a little bit about the the aims of the organisation. What were your demands? I think you had six main demands at the time. Can you, can you remember what, what were they? Yeah, it was, the demands really developed as we put together chains or change equal pay, equal education, equality in law, contraception, uh, one family, one house. Justice for deserted wives. Just, yeah, for deserted wives, widows and unmarried mothers. Those were the main things and they developed through the meetings, through the meetings in guise and through putting together chains or change because it was through that we began to see how incredibly bad things were for women because most of us were we were privileged you know we were middle class we were in really cool jobs we were having a great time but it was really putting together the information that we began to see oh my god it's it's unbelievable how bad the situation is for women and how corralled and disempowered women in Ireland are. And was it difficult, Chains chains or Change, great name by the way, but was it difficult to actually assemble all that information all that length of time ago? I mean, you obviously, as you say, you had no internet and uh, you would have limited access, presumably in those days, to the kind of statistics that you needed. So was it a difficult task and was it a shocking task when you actually managed to accumulate this information? It was incredibly difficult, you know, like it's hard to remember how difficult it was to collect information before Google came along. You know, you had to physically go to trade union offices, you had to physically go through newspaper files. It was a big task. It was huge. And then Marie McMahon, who was one of the younger members of the group, and she was the only female printer in Ireland. She put together all the information and Marie just sat weeping with rage at how appalling it was. We revealed the structure of the patriarchy and it was also the first time in Ireland's history that anyone had looked at how women were being treated, which is kind of extraordinary. It was like, it didn't matter up to then. So we revealed, you know, we pulled back the curtain and revealed just how appalling it was. And you did it on the preeminent forum in Ireland of the time, the kind of the town meeting forum, the Late Late Show, stoked, I'm sure, by the great Gay Byrne. But tell us about that epochal programme, that epochal Late Late Show on the 6th of March, 1971. 
it was Mary Kenny's idea that we should go on the late late. And there was a lot of discussion back and forth. Like some of the sisters felt, no, we shouldn't go on. It's too soon. Others felt, yeah, let's go on. Because everybody in the whole country watched the late late at the time. And actually, Gay Byrne gave us a really good deal. Like we were allowed to choose the panel and we were allowed to pretty much choose the audience. And we took it incredibly seriously. We practiced and practiced that nobody would shout or scream or be emotional, that we'd be really rational and reasonable. But then, of course, Mary Kenny, who was a total firebrand at the time, she threw a hand grenade into the mix. She probably got bored at, at all the politeness. And she said, there isn't a politician in the country who gives a damn about women's rights. And at that moment, Garrett Fitzgerald, who was sitting by his fire, leaped into his car, drove up to the studios in RTE. And you know, when you think about it, it's funny. He was immediately ushered in to the Late Late Show studio. Gay, of course, was a preeminent media host. He knew this would be great television. Garrett Fitzgerald was given sort of the prime seat to say, you know, yes, everything would be wonderful when he got in. And of course, the whole studio exploded. And afterwards, there was some disappointment that we hadn't been reasonable or rational but looking back, it was actually, it was a brilliant thing because it showed the depth of feeling. And if we had spent the whole evening being terribly rational and reasonable, we mightn't have got through to so many women because showing depth of feeling can carry a message across sometimes more than being really logical. And it certainly had a huge impact like everybody was talking about it afterwards and chains or change just kept selling out. Like as soon as we would just tetner off another few hundred copies, it would disappear again. It was for sale for 10p. Maureen Johnson was just reminding me, but people couldn't get enough of it and they couldn't get enough of women's liberation. Women couldn't get enough of it. So that was when the story exploded all over Ireland. But I'm sure there must have been some adverse reaction to the appearance on the, the Late Late Show. I mean, I'm sure the word hysterical, which is always you, when, when a woman raises her voice above a certain pitch, she always she's hysterical. So I'm sure that must have been tossed around a lot. And I mean, I know there was certainly um, opposition from within the Catholic Church, for example. Oh, the atmosphere was incredibly toxic in some ways you know like I'm sort of coming across as it was really positive and it was really positive that we got the message out but for instance one day we were doing a little march like I'd say it was 30 of us walked up to the Doyle where Mary Robinson who wasn't ever a member of the Irish women's movement but she was very supportive and would come to meetings and give legal advice. And Mary was actually in the Senate trying to get her contraceptive bill through. And uh, we were outside and the senator came rushing out, 
like there were women there with little ones in buggies and he screamed at us, you should all be on your hands and knees like animals because that's all you are. Like it was so shocking. I remember just being absolutely stunned and thinking, you know, it was like poking a crocodile. You suddenly realise the viciousness of the opposition. And Bishop Cassidy, I think his name was, he preached that there is nowhere more unsafe in the world than a mother's womb. Like it was, it was so shocking. So yes, there was huge pushback. I was just researching an essay on Mary Robinson recently, and I'd forgotten that when she was running for president, one of the politicians, Fianna Fáil politician, said she'd turn the Oris into the Red Cow Inn. It was like, you know, there was that sort of brutal misogyny mm. that was definitely there. Now, in addition to the Late Late Show appearance, which obviously made a splash, the other big splash was made in May 1971, and that was when the contraceptive train episode happened. Tell us about that, and what was the the thinking behind that? Again, that was Mary Marr and Nell. It was really their brainchild. And the idea was that we would go up to Belfast, buy the contraceptive pill, come back and challenge the customs officers at Connolly Station to arrest us because contraception was illegal at the time. I think it was 47 women got on the train. I was I was bad. I didn't get on the train because it was my 23rd birthday and I stayed in bed with my lover who, because he was English, had contraceptives rather ironic, but I was there to greet everyone when they came back. And when they got to the chemist in Belfast, they were told they couldn't actually buy contraceptives in Belfast either without a prescription. So it was Nell's idea, buy loads of aspirin and nobody will know the difference. So when they came back and somebody shouted, lose your contraceptives and they threw pills in the air, They were actually aspirin. Um, (laughs) People were really afraid, like Maureen Johnson, who was pregnant at the time and had one of her children with her. She'd bought spermicidal jelly and went up to the customs officer and said, you know, challenged him, said, you know, it's mine, you can't take it. But she was terrified. And a lot of the women were that they would be put in prison Marie McMahon was terrified as well. Like, we didn't know. And Maureen de Burke had organised a group of women to be there to support them coming back, and I was part of that. And Marie McMahon said, as they were coming towards Connolly, and she could hear us shouting, let them through, let them through, that she almost cried with relief, you know, because she felt whatever happened, it was going to be okay that there would be support there and visibility. You know, they wouldn't just be quickly arrested and taken away. But again, like it took another 20 years, if you can believe it, for contraception to be properly and fully legalised. But it did open up the conversation 
about contraception. It did show that it was there as a right that every woman could grab and that direct action was, it wasn't just possible, but it was available to everybody. The direct action part of it was as important as the message. There was so much shame around sexuality and contraception was clearly involved in sexuality and that we would go out and say, yes, we want contraceptives for everybody, that that in itself had an impact in just dismantling some of the shame the Catholic Church had built up around sex. So, yeah, they were fun times. I can remember Kate Millett saying, you know, how glorious it was to be part of the amazing women in America in second wave feminism. And it was great fun. There were frightening times, you know, when a man would attack you or, you know, or a woman, but it was a lot of men. But it was also felt we were on a wave of something really big and it was really, really positive. And it was going to bring really great changes for everybody and for our sex that was very much needed. And that felt great. Now, uh, Nuala Fennell was one of the, I think, the early members, if not necessarily the original members of the of the women's movement. And yeah, then she yeah. later went on to become a, a, a TD. So although the Irish Women's Liberation Movement was short-lived, less than a year, it did seem to pave the way for women to get into the political system and to begin to make a difference. Absolutely, yeah. Like one of the things we discovered in Chains or Change in education, these are some of the careers that were barred to women, like engineers, airline pilots, bus drivers, police inspectors, bank managers, newspaper editors, compositors, criminal lawyers, judges, surgeons, technicians, accountants, higher civil servants. The young women of today who are so brilliant and have really interesting careers that they love and cherish, it's hard for them to even imagine a situation in which so much was barred to women. But it was like 1% of professionals were women. 1%. We did change the world a bit. And there were very interesting groups that came on, like even though, like you've been saying, the IWLM only lasted for nine months. A whole bunch of organisations kind of were birthed from that. A lot of them looking after a specific area, you know, like Battered Wives that Nula Fennell and her husband were involved in, the Irish Family Planning Clinic, the Well Woman Centres, the Rape Crisis Centre, Cherish, Irish Women's Aid, a whole load of organisations, usually working to a specific issue, grew out of the ground that we'd dug up. There was also Irish Women United in 1975. They did some great protests. Like They invaded the 40-foot where the men had... They'd basically nabbed the best swimming spot in Sandy Cove and said it was only for them and they could bathe there nude. So a whole bunch of women, like they went out on successive weeks, but the men were so nasty, you know, like these big old walruses. 
walking around in their nude, but they'd get um, wet towels and try and attack the women. Some of them got very nasty, but thankfully now that the 40 foot is open to everybody. So there were um, direct actions as part of Irish Women United that were really effective and fun as well. One of the less heralded members, I mean, you mentioned a lot of names that would be very familiar to people, Mary Kenny, Nell McCafferty, Mary Marr, people like that. But uh, one of the founding members, Mary Sheeran, died recently. Tell us about her and her impact on the movement. Yeah, we, we just buried Mary last week. She was a sweetheart, really gentle soul. Like an amazing thing, thinking about how education was so slewed in favour of men. Like Mary was brought up in a, in Cabra and her parents were passionate about education and felt the most important way they could support their girls was helping them to get an education. And when Mary was they were trying to get her into secondary school. There was a corporation grant for boys to go on to a secondary school that was £100. And for girls, it was £15. You know, it's just like, it's unbelievable, really. But Mary, she was never a really rowdy member. She was very efficient at getting stuff done. And it was Mary who booked the roundhouse in the mansion house for the meeting where 900 women turned up. And I remember Mary saying, you know, we we really thought we might be there speaking to ourselves for the evening. But the queue of speakers was so long of women wanting to get up and tell their stories. And most of them were you know, like Marie McMahon said, raging infernos. Like women had been so oppressed. But the queue of speakers was so long that at 11 at night, we had to just stop it. You know, we had to stop any more women joining. But Mary, the group that we had, it was very diverse, but that was its strength in a way that somebody like Maureen de Burke, who's a passionate socialist, June Levine, who was had come late to the women's movement, like June was middle class, married, but as passionate, if not more so than Maureen de Burke, and Mary Sheeran, who knew how to get stuff done. You know, so the group, it kind of worked, even though we were all really different, the mix worked. Now, there's no doubt that the Irish women's movement in its various forms and manifestations had a huge impact on social change in Ireland in the 70s and 80s. But I'm I'm minded of an occasion where uh, at a forum in Trinity College, uh, Garrett Fitzgerald claimed credit, not personally, but for Irish politicians for the social change that had taken place in Ireland in the 70s and 80s. And it was pointed out to him that uh, perhaps the EEC and legislation in the EEC, which was forced on Ireland, and a liberal Supreme Court might also have played a part in all of that. How important was something like Europe, for example, in actually forcing Irish politicians to introduce the kind of changes that you were, were looking for? I think Europe has been incredibly important. 
there's almost a generation divide in Ireland, I think, like that the younger generations totally see the benefits of belonging to Europe and the liberalisation that Europe has brought in. Like Irish politicians, a lot of them, I don't know what you'd need to get them to change. You know, it's incredibly despair-making that at the moment Irish politicians are still not um, giving justice to the survivors of the mother and baby homes. It's absolutely unbelievable that, you know, supposedly educated men on huge salaries aren't giving justice to these women and their children and the adoptees. I, I don't know, a despair of, of Irish politicians. I, I'm glad we're in Europe, but sometimes I wish Europe would um, push them around a bit more. You know, like we did the Irish Women's Liberation Movement. We did bring about change, but there's so much more change needs to happen in Ireland to separate the church, the Catholic church, to get it completely out of both education and health, to separate it completely and to get it to pay for all the damage it's done to women. Well, it's been a pleasure to to talk to you. Um, the book, your book is called Feminism Backwards. Uh, it's Rosita's own story intertwined with the fight for women's rights in Ireland. It's published by Mercier Press and is available from their online bookshop and uh, from bookshops across the country. Rosita, as I say, it's been a great pleasure, great privilege to talk to you on The History Show. I'm sure that there are a few battered copies of Chains or Change around. Obviously, you've got at least one yourself, hopefully on people's bookshelves. And if not, if you want to have a look at it, you can go into the National Library uh, to have a look and to read it. And apparently it's catalogued alongside the Communist Manifesto. So Rosita Sweetman, thank you very much for talking to us today. Thank you so much, Miles. Thank you. That's all we've time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items, as well as podcasts, are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. Our researcher is Liz Gillis. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Dungan, and producer Logan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening.